That was the quickest message you've ever heard. It was so quick, you didn't even know it. Thank you, buddy. <clears throat> Some of you have, uh, a few weeks ago when we brought up uh, this new series on overflow generosity, and I, on that first Sunday, talked about <clears throat> uh, asking, inviting you to participate in this 30-day generosity reading. Uh, some of you have been doing that, and, and let me just uh, appease or, or sort of set your minds at ease. Some of those passages, as you're reading through them, you find them rather confusing, and I get that. The purpose behind it was for us to understand how much the Bible has to say to us about generosity. And so I encourage you to, to keep at it, uh, to continue to ask God to reveal to you more and more what it is that he has for us. That would be fantastic. All right, so I just wanted to, to lay that out there before we get going uh, in, in this morning's message as we continue this series on generosity entitled Overflow. A number of years ago, about a little over 20 years ago, there was a book that came out called The Day America Told the Truth. This book revealed some startling truths as the researchers delved into a variety of areas, <clears throat> from religious beliefs to political leanings to family issues and a, and a whole lot of other things that they wanted to discuss and, and find out what people really thought they surveyed over 2,000 people. The survey was, was solid. It was, it was uh, you know, it's, it's scientifically proven that, this was a, that there was a margin of error in here like any other survey, but it was very valid. And they asked, one, they asked this question. One of the many questions they asked was this question. What would you be willing to do to receive $10 million? So what would you be willing to do for $10 million? Their conclusions were the responses of people shocked, shocked people. It shocked the researchers. researchers. Here's, what they, here's what they found out. 3% of those surveyed said that they would put up a child for adoption. 7% said that they would kill a stranger. 10% said that they would withhold testimony and let a murderer go free. 16% would leave their spouses. 23% would become a prostitute for a week or more. And 25% would abandon their entire family. That's a staggering staggering conclusion. And what ends up happening, what that survey reveals to us is, as we shake our heads in disbelief, what it reveals to us is this, is that money, if we allow it, does very strange and detrimental things to us. If the abundance of resources goes unchecked, we will do strange things. We will do destructive things. And so the purpose of what we're talking about today is we constantly need a realignment when it comes to generosity. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. And we'll take a look at these verses from verse 13 to 21. He says this, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, 
Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Father, we pray now as we come to this time of looking at your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes that we could see, open our ears that we can hear, open our minds that we could understand, and open our hearts that we would be transformed, that we, in essence, would be realigned by you. Lord, we confess that it's easy for us to point fingers at those who we think have more money than us or have more resources than us and, and make accusations of greed and things like that. Yet, Lord, the reality is all of us have an abundance. And we confess to you that oftentimes we allow that abundance to dictate our lives rather than you. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us, would help us, and would open us up to what it is that you have for us so that we could be generous, rich towards you. Holy Spirit, may no one hear anything that I say, but may they hear only what it is that you want them to hear. And may you, Lord Jesus Christ, be lifted up. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. At the beginning of Luke chapter 12, Luke informs us that Jesus Christ's popularity is going through the roof. In verse, in verse 1, it says this, Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered, so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples. Jesus' popularity is going through the roof. This idea that Jesus simply hung out with the 12 guys and every now and then they did this or that is not accurate from a biblical standpoint. Jesus Christ's popularity continued to increase and part of the reason why it continued to increase was because Jesus Christ was bringing a message that desperately needed to be heard by people. It wasn't only the people that were coming in and very, very concerned about what he was saying and interested in what he was saying, but the religious establishment was wondering how could this rabbi from a small town off the shore of Galilee get such a growing, such a popularity, such a response in such a short period of time. And so he's talking to thousands upon thousands of people, so much so that we're told here that they were trampling on one another. It would be like going to see the Pittsburgh Steelers win their seventh Super Bowl. Just a mob scene. I have to talk about the Steelers because USC stinks this year, and I'm dealing with my disappointment right now. 
but his popularity is going through the roof. And then it almost seems as if someone says, pardon me, I need to interrupt you. Look what happens in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. We've had that happen before. We're having a discussion with someone and then a third person comes in and interrupts us having no idea of what we've been talking about. It happens all the time. And for Jesus, he seems to handle it a whole lot better than we do. He handles interruptions so much better than we do. And so this person tells him, or asks him, doesn't even ask him, he says, tell my brother to divide this inheritance with me. And one of the things to keep in mind is this, is that it is always a good plan, always a good plan, to include Jesus Christ in your plans. It's always a good plan. It makes the most sense. The unfortunate thing is this, is that oftentimes we get our plans going and then we say, hey Jesus, what do you think about these plans? We end up in trouble, and then we say, hey, Lord, why aren't, you, why aren't you walking with me through this? And I don't know how he exactly responds, but, but a part of me wants to believe that he looks at us and just says, well, if you don't want to include me in your plans, this is probably what's going to happen. So this guy yells out, and, and it has to, we, he, we have to almost think that way because there's so many people around him, and he's speaking, and then apparently there's some type of pregnant pause, and he speaks up and changes the entire, the entire focus of the message. In verses 1 through 12, Jesus Christ is talking about persecution, and he's talking about hanging in there with people. He's talking about not being afraid of those people who are going to come up against you. He's talking about bad teaching that, that the Pharisees had done. He's talking about all these other issues, and then this guy interrupts him. It causes quite a stir. And right now, Jesus has an opportunity, an opportunity to address a big issue. And as this guy says to him, says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, one of the things that we need to understand is his, the inheritance in Jesus' day broke down this way. If you were the firstborn son, you received 50% of the inheritance. If you were not the firstborn son and you were you know, the younger siblings or whatever, you split up the remaining 50%. So to be firstborn definitely had some benefits. How many of you in here are firstborn? See, let's unite together and dominate. All right? No, just joking, okay? But my point is, for the firstborn son, it meant a lot. It meant an awful lot. And so Jesus has this question, not a question, this order from this individual saying, tell him to divide the inheritance with me. And here's our issue. When we ask Jesus to get involved, it's really also a good plan to listen to Jesus' response. We've been there, haven't we? Lord, I'm asking you to give me some guidance about this situation or that situation. And the Lord responds to us, and then we instantly say, I was looking for a different answer. So let's try this again. Right? I've been there. Been there plenty of times. And so this person needs to be ready for what Jesus Christ is going to say. 
We pick it up in verse 14. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Real quickly, that man that he talks about there is more like my friend or whatever. It's not, man, what are you doing? Okay, you know how we do that. So man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Jesus Christ, in essence, seems to be saying, hey, I really don't want to get involved in this, but you've invited me in. I'm a rabbi. I'll get involved. Then he says this, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Jesus Christ is laying down a priority here, and it's priority one. And and contrary to popular belief, when people read this verse, read verse 14, they sit there and say, well, see, Jesus Christ always wanted to talk about money. It was the number one thing that he talked about. Hear me clearly on this. That is not the case at all. Jesus Christ's number one priority, Jesus Christ's number one message, Jesus Christ's number one theme, you look through all of, all of the Gospels. Priority one for Jesus Christ was not talking about money. Priority one was talking about his kingdom, his rule, and how it influences our lives. Money falls underneath that. But Jesus Christ is talking about his kingdom far more than anything else. He's talking about his rule in our lives. How does God's kingdom rule in my, in my family? How does God rule in the way I treat others? How does God rule in the way I spend my time? How does God rule in the way I deal with people who've hurt me? How does God, how does God rule in the way I spend my money? It's all kingdom stuff. This idea that Jesus Christ is so consumed with money that that's the number one thing he talks about is inaccurate. The thing that he's most concerned about is you and I living out his reign, his rule in our lives. And yes, that does include money. We live in a society that is consumed with money. There are more billionaires now than at any other time in history. All always, always talking about money in this society. But Jesus' idea is not to talk only about money. But he does know this, and look what happens in the latter part of verse 15. He says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Jesus understands this to be true, that one of the biggest obstacles to his kingdom being done, his rule happening, is this, it's greed. Greed has a way of reaching in. Greed has a way of of distorting what needs to happen. And so then Jesus, as he always, as he often does, tells a great story. We pick it up in verse 16. He told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. And I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Jesus addresses this issue of greed. Because greed causes in all of our lives this incredible preoccupation with ourselves and a preservation of ourselves. That's what happens. 
When it comes to greed, we become even more consumed with ourselves. And this rich farmer is a great case study for us. He's a great case study because people understood farming back then, much like we probably understand it the way it works today to a certain extent. We see these fields around us, and we don't see them as simple simple fields. We see them as, there's going to be crops coming out of that ground. How can we make money off of those crops? But this rich farmer, rich farmer exposes you and I for who we are. And our default mode, our default mode is this. Our default mode is to be completely preoccupied with ourselves. When push comes to shove, we are preoccupied with ourselves. How do I know this to be true? I know this to be true because Jesus Christ commands us to love others. He doesn't command us to love ourselves. He commands us to love others. Why is it a command? Because we struggle to do it. We struggle to carry that out. And this preoccupation that we have with ourselves then ends up translating into a self-preservation. Meaning when a crisis happens or abundance happens, as in this case, all of a sudden it becomes all about us and making sure that we're going to be taken care of. And in the process of that self-preservation happening, it leads us to be isolated from the needs of others. Look at this story, and let's walk through this a little bit. Verse 18, then he said this, then he, then he said, or I'm sorry, verse 17, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Immediately, we're alerted to an issue with this individual. Immediately, we're alerted to the fact that this person has no friends. How do we know? In Middle Eastern culture back in Jesus' day, any type of decision wasn't just your decision. It was a community decision. Your business was everybody's business. Just like your neighbor's business was, your, was everybody's business, everything you did was everybody's business. Who should my son or daughter marry? How should I conduct myself with this rebellious child? How should I spend my money? All of these were community events. And so this guy ends up getting a bumper crop, and he says, I thought to, he, in essence, he's having a discussion with himself, not with the community, but with himself. What shall I do? This guy has no friends from what we can gather. And he lays out these things and he says, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be married. Consider what happens here. He's having a discussion with himself and he should be having a discussion with a whole lot of other people, but he doesn't have a whole lot of other people involved in his life, so therefore he continues to have this discussion with himself, which reveals to us he's only concerned about who? Himself. And then as you go through this and you hear what he does, God is not mentioned one time. 
I will tear down my barns. I will build bigger ones. I will take the surplus and I will store it so that I can then say, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Read through it. There's no acknowledgement whatsoever that God is the one who has blessed him. There's no acknowledgement whatsoever about what he should do for the community. And he actually believes that he is the master of his life. That he's the one who took care of this. He's the one that created this. He's the one that provided the abundance. When he says this, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. He forgets the key line at the end of that. It's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. There's a reference up on the screen. It's Isaiah 22, but that's not, that's, I, I apologize. That's not the right one. You can read it and just say, what does that have to do with this? Look it up on your own. Find it. Find where it says. It's in Isaiah. I just know, I apologize for that. I wrote down the wrong, the wrong reference there. He believed he was a master of his own life. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And Luke does something here with the Greek that's not in our, that's not in our, obviously in the English, in, the, in our translations. He takes this word, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry, and he uses, he inserts this Greek word that is euphrino. And what euphrino means is this, is that when you take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry, in essence what it's saying is you then deserve to take a deep breath of, of accomplishment. That breath needs to come from the expansion of your diaphragm. Breathe deeply and enjoy what God has done. You enter into a state of, of euphrino, is what, is what Luke is talking about here. Folks, we are so blessed. And the question is this, what do we do with that blessing? What do we do with all that he's given to us? How do we process that? How do we deal with all that keeps coming our way at times? We have these opportunities before us all the time. And so often we sit there and we only think of ourselves. Part of the reason why we have to have our lives realigned by Jesus Christ is because it's a bigger issue than what we realize. This farmer didn't get that. This farmer completely focuses in on himself. This farmer completely forgets that people could have received the abundance that he had received. You see, our preoccupation with self leads to preserving ourselves, which then leads to isolating ourselves from others. This person, there's, there's, there's no, there's no, look at this, there's no response whatsoever to the fact that people, his employees, were one of the people, were some of the people that helped make this bumper crop happen. He doesn't say, maybe I should give them some time off. Maybe I should look out for them. Because keep in mind, most of the peoples in Jesus' day were dirt poor. 
It was the haves, which consisted of maybe 5% of the population, and 95% of the have-nots. People were trying to make it from day to day. This guy gets this abundance based on all this stuff that that people had done for him, and he says, I'm only going to take care of myself. When we're preoccupied with ourselves, we preserve ourselves. When we preserve ourselves, we we completely forget about other people. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus instantly says, let's talk about greed. You see, greed happens slowly and surely. If it's left unchecked, it consumes us. We need to be realigned. And Jesus comes in and we pick it up in verse 20. It says this, But God said to him, You fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? The very one who exclaims that he is going to be able to take life easy and take a deep breath from his diaphragm is now told that he's a fool. Remember that word I told you just a little while ago, euphrino which talks about taking a deep breath from your diaphragm. Luke then puts in this word, and it's a play on the euphrino word, and it's simply this. He says, aphron. He drops a part of the word that talks about diaphragm, and what he's saying is, you will have absolutely, you're such a fool, you have no diaphragm because you're dead. Jesus was a great storyteller, and he used words in such a way that it, 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 in essence, was a hit to the gut. This guy's breath is taken away from him. You fool. You don't see beyond yourself. You don't realize that there is more going on here. And he says, this very night your life will be demanded from you. From you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Who's going to get it? Not him. Not him. He had this incredible abundance. He could have gone down in the community as this amazing community hero. He could have gone down in his community as an incredibly godly man who knew what to do with his resources. But what happens is he simply dies. The resources are gone. Then he says this, verse 21. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. This will be for whoever is not rich towards God. What does it mean to be rich towards God? It means this, is that we are to realign our mindsets to get in line with what he thinks is important. And people are always more important than possessions. Always. How do we get to know what that mindset is? How do we get to understand what what it means to be rich toward God? Here's, Here's... Here's a couple practical things. Number one, spend time in His Word. 
Part of the reason why I wanted to do this 30-day generosity read through the Bible thing is to help us realize that generosity isn't a sporadic play, isn't sporadic throughout the Bible, but it's throughout the entire Bible. Generosity is there. And number two, think of others before you think of yourself when it comes to generosity. We interface with so many types of, so many different people, and some of those people that we interface with are going through some really difficult times. But if we don't ask the question, we'll never hear the answer. To be rich towards God means that we are in line with Him. And then we need to ask this question How can generosity expand His ongoing work in this world? There are incredibly generous people out here. There are incredibly generous people within this congregation. And his kingdom is one that lasts forever. You and I don't. Our time on this earth is short. But here's what can last forever. How we use our resources in light of what he wants to do through those resources for his kingdom. This church is going on 145 years. It's about 145 years old. You want to know why? Not because of you and me, but because of God's generosity to keep us moving forward. It's his generosity throughout the generations of of people that have come in and out through this church. It's his generosity that keeps moving us forward. It's his generosity that will not fail. It's his generosity that moves in our midst so that we can see other people's issues rather than our own. My prayer for us, my prayer for us is that we would be rich towards God. That we would see our resources not as our own, but as what is it that God wants to do through these resources. Because His kingdom expands. His kingdom starts with Him, it expands with Him, and there is no end to His kingdom. And I want to participate in that. I want to participate in a kingdom that has no end. Participate with with him as he guides, as he leads. We get to participate with him and look what happens. His kingdom continues to move. His reign continues to make a difference. If you haven't already been inundated with Black Friday ads on TV or in the mail, brace yourself because it's coming. And would it not be a great thing for us as Christ followers to say this, instead of looking out for ourselves this Christmas season, we're going to look out for God's kingdom and what He wants us to do with our resources. I invite all of us to be involved in that. I invite all of us to say, I want to be rich towards God. And to be rich towards God means realigning ourselves with the way he views generosity. Father, we pray now, as we think through these words, as we see the story of this self-absorbed farmer, person who had everything, and then some, yet could not see beyond the tip of their nose, Lord, these words convict me. 
Because, Lord, there is a world, there are people in this world that are hurting so much and perhaps we cross paths with them all the time and we don't even realize it. And, Lord, I know that money's not the answer. I know that, I know that to be true. But I also know this, that you work in phenomenal ways when we're generous. Lives are changed. Things are set right. Because you are a generous God. You did not hold back. But you gave everything. And Lord, I thank you for the generosity that is so evident in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I would pray, I do pray right now, that we would be a generous people. That we would shift our focus from ourselves and put it on to you. And that in the process, by putting it on to you, we would see your kingdom expand because we are being rich towards you. And you are always rich in giving what we need. Lord, we love you. We thank you and we pray that your Holy Spirit will move freely among us so that we could be rich towards you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to invite the worship team to come back up. I invite you to stand up as we continue our worship this morning. And uh, we're going to sing about his amazing grace. We're going to sing about how great he is and that he is our cornerstone. He is the one that takes care of us. And so I invite you to sing out greatly. That came out wrong. I don't know if great can ever be an adverb, but anyway, you know what I'm saying. Sing with great zest and zeal this morning.